0: Almighty God and Father, we worship you this morning and glorify your Son, Jesus. And we come uh, longing to meet you, longing to have you speak as we open up your word. Come, O oh God, by the Spirit, and make yourself known to us that we might be more like your Son, Jesus. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. There's a saying that some of you may have heard about the Gospel of John. It's often quoted. The Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And uh, this is attributed often to Augustine or to Spurgeon, as many memorable quotes are. But according to New Testament scholar David Turner, it likely goes back to Gregory the Great in the 6th century from his moral, moral reflections on the book of Job. Gregory comments that scripture stretches the minds of the wise and nourishes the minds of the simple and then he writes about all of scripture that scripture is like a river that has shallow parts where a lamb may wade and depths where an elephant may swim. The reality about the Gospel of John is not that it has shallow and deep parts like a river, but that the whole of John's Gospel is capable of communicating the truth about Jesus in simple terms. And at the same time, capable of sustaining the deepest thought and reflection of all Christians. In short, whether you are new to the faith or even just exploring Christianity, or you're a a professor of New Testament... Engaging the Gospel of John is always rewarding. I learned that the Gospel was good for beginners from my dad. I've mentioned before that my dad was an airline pilot and he perfected the art of airplane evangelism. He commuted from Colorado Springs to St. Louis for the last 15 years or so of his career and often rode in the back with the rest of us. The key tool in his arsenal aside from an admirable storytelling ability and his gentleness was a pocket-sized gospel of John after engaging with someone in a conversation he'd end the conversation usually by asking if he could give this person a gift of this gospel of John and politely at times was refused and he'd be fine with that but for those who said they'd be glad to take it he'd hand them a copy of the gospel of John. And I I grew up with these little pocket sized Gospels of John around my house and it it was a reminder that this is a great book to turn to if you're exploring the faith or a beginner in your Christian life there's a lot to glean from John. We're titling the series Come and See because this Gospel is an invitation to come and see Jesus the one who explains God to us that's what verse 18 says in John 1 the prologue Jesus exegetes the father to us he is God's autobiography so that Jesus can say to his disciples in John 14 whoever has seen me has seen the father if you're not yet sure about Jesus if you're tuning in online today hoping that none of your roommates or family members will see you because if they did they'd wonder why you were interested in something called church or in something called Christianity then this is a great book for you It's a great book to dig into. You'll see Jesus clearly portrayed. Which means that you will see God as God longs for himself to be known. And John the evangelist who writes this gospel writes with a very specific purpose. He's very explicit at the end of the gospel in John 20 verse 31. But these are written, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why this gospel exists, John says, because I want you to see Jesus and I want you in seeing Jesus to come to entrust yourself to him and to have life, to know life. Eternal life is a theme of this gospel, this life that never ends, that God alone can give. But this is also a book for more mature Christians, for those perhaps who've been walking with Jesus for some time. John's simple writing style his Greek is the simplest of the New Testament should not be mistaken for any lack of profound thought or depth in fact we all know that the use of big words can often actually conceal a confused mind or a lack of understanding I heard someone say that his teacher in theology at Cambridge taught him never to use a three-syllable word when a two-syllable word would do And that's a great lesson, I think, for all students and for all of us. There is a sense in which John embodies that advice. He writes in a straightforward fashion, but does so with a brilliance and clarity and depth that communicates wonderfully. The elephants can swim indeed in his waters. Two ministry colleagues and I had the privilege in 2006, I was in Washington DC at the time of getting to have dinner with Tom and Maggie Wright. That's N.T. Wright. I'm sure many of you have read his work. uh, One of the leading New Testament theologians of our day and biblical scholars. And his work up to that point especially had largely been focused on the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His big book, Jesus and the Victory of God, essentially just doesn't deal with the gospel of John. So I asked him that question over dinner. I said, so when are you going to deal with the gospel of John? And I'll never forget his response. He said, John is for mature theologians. The implication is that he wasn't ready and he wasn't yet mature enough to tackle that. He's done a bit more since then. It's 14 years ago now. But it does give me a humble pause as we start this series together. It's a wonderful book but deep. And yet it's also a great invitation because here in John we come to profound depths about our Lord Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. What an incredible mystery and reality that John makes plain for us in his prologue it's interesting in the in the history of the study of the four gospels in the history of the church they have been assigned to one of the faces of each of the four living creatures in Ezekiel's vision of heavenly glory in Ezekiel chapter one there's the human being the lion the ox and the eagle and John is assigned to the eagle in part because he sees beyond and through what is immediately present to what is deeper and true. John's gospel takes the very earthy words and stories of Jesus and plums their depths and then here in that case John is a feast for all of us newcomer and seasoned biblical scholar alike. Let me say a word about our approach you'll uh, notice that we are beginning today in verse 19 of chapter one which is not the beginning of the gospel that means that we are jumping over the prologue at least for the time being so that we can begin with the narrative itself this enables us to get right into the stories these earthy stories of Jesus and his words and deeds and of course of his interactions with others we will of course as we look at these stories assume the profound truths of the prologue as we move through them. And then our plan is in the season of Advent which starts with the last Sunday in November. The four Sundays leading up to Christmas. uh, To return Lord willing to spend four weeks in this wonderful prologue of 18 verses. And my hope is that having spent some time with Jesus in his life and deeds already. That we will then bring added depth to our study of the prologue during Advent. One final introductory remark. The Christian life is all about Jesus. There was a time in our family when our kids were younger. When our son, who was about two or three. At at any of our family devotions, we'd read something in scripture and ask the kids some questions. And he wouldn't wait. He he never hesitated. We'd ask a question and, and he would just pipe up and go, Jesus, Jesus. It was always the answer. And there's something wonderfully true about that toddler insight. That any question in Christian theology eventually takes us to Jesus. Who is God's yes. All of God's promises are yes, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who is to be lifted up above all. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. He is the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. He is the king who rules over all. All of these things are portrayed in the book of the Gospel of John. Jesus is everything. And if in the Christian life we lose sight of Jesus, then we have lost sight of everything. We've lost sight of God. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus And my hope as we take up this series is that we would come and see Jesus. Whether that's for the first time or for the thousandth time. That we would as the author of Hebrews says keep our eyes. Let let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. And in so doing that we would be challenged. And that we would grow and that we would be changed. To become more like him. And to know this eternal life in deeper ways. So, the narrative of John the Evangelist opens up with John the Baptist and his testimony or his witness in verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony. John the Baptist's testimony contains two basic messages. First, verses 19 through 28, addressing the question, Who am I? And second, in verses 29 to 34, addressing the question, Who is Jesus? Who am I? Who is Jesus? There are no more basic questions for us to wrestle with with one another and as human beings than these two questions and it's no surprise that as John gets his story started that he begins here tackling these two questions and that's what we're going to do in the remainder of our time this morning. So first who am I? Verses 19 through 28. John's reflection on this question is prompted by the arrival of priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem from the Jews there in Jerusalem and they ask him in verse 19 who are you these were the religious professionals representing the religious authorities who were responsible for religious purity and doctrinal orthodoxy throughout Israel and they were sent to John the Baptist as an interrogation squad because John's ministry had begun to gain some traction and it had caught their attention and they rightly come to investigate and interrogate him probably also to shut him down if they think that he's not legitimate and authorized to do what he's doing so they're asking an important question who are you and I want to say before we we look at John the Baptist's response that we need to recognize that John the evangelist's story, the gospel of John, is a story that's embedded in a particular history, about a particular people, at a particular place, at a particular moment in time. John tells his story of Jesus, as do all the gospel writers, as the fulfillment of the Jewish story. The story about God and Israel, about Israel's great hope, And God's promises that had not yet been fulfilled. It's a story that extends all the way back to creation. And John lets us know that he's writing his story to reflect and respond to that great story by beginning his gospel with the words in the beginning. That story of God and creation or God and humanity gets focused in Genesis 12 on the story of God and Abram who becomes Abraham. God and the people of Israel they were elected they were chosen that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed this is how God would undo the problem of sin in Genesis 3 through his calling of Abram and his descendants to be agents of blessing to all the world and these bigger stories we need to keep them in mind God and Israel God and humanity God and creation as we take up the gospels To go back to the image of a child waiting we can benefit greatly from the Gospels without much knowledge of the backstory but that's a bit like reading the third book in a trilogy without reading the prior two you can get a lot out of it you can enjoy the story but there's a lot of dimensions that you're missing because you haven't read the first two books. To swim in the depths of the Gospel of John which takes us a lifetime and which I hope we'll do somewhat together in this series will mean being attentive To these much larger stories. Of which John's story of Jesus is the great fulfillment and climax. This interrogation squad comes from Jerusalem. Because of this larger story. This Jewish story. They were awaiting the renewal of God in the world. They were awaiting God's return to Zion. To set his people free. And to set up his rightful rule. And so they hear of this prophet. This voice this person baptizing out in the wilderness and they come and they want to know what is it that he's saying he's not painting on a blank canvas instead John the Baptist just like Jesus is building on a base on outlines and expectations and tensions that are already there and the coming of Jesus into this story is like the final bold strokes of an artist that bring a painting to its full beauty in its radiant glory who are you they ask John's main point in his response to this interrogation is a great lesson to learn as every follower of Jesus should learn it is to get out of the way John continually points away from himself who are you I'm not the Christ he says in verse 20 he confesses this freely and one can almost imagine gladly that's not who I am the Christ means the Messiah the anointed one and the Jews of that day were looking for the Messiah's coming the one who had fulfilled the great promises of God to his people and who had reestablished the temple's former glory and John says no it's not me the first great reality of our lives is to get this message of John hammered into our heads we are not the Christ at the beginning of his book the denial of death written in 1973 Ernest Becker quotes William James who remarked quote mankind's common instinct for reality has always held the world to be essentially a theater for heroism Becker then goes on to suggest what is in the heart of the creature is quote the desire to stand out to be the one in creation John's message John the Baptist's answer moves against all of that he says we're not the Christ I am not the Christ that's what he says and there is much that must be clear In our hearts about this if we are to engage the Christian life at all. We are not the Christ. That question of who I am cannot cast us as the hero, the central figure, the actor in a leading role. We are at best actors in a supporting role whose job it is to lift up the great hero and the protagonist. The one in the leading role that is Jesus himself and that's what John teaches us in his simple confession. I am not the Christ. His interrogators pressed further then who are you they asked are you Elijah and it should be said that the Jewish people were expecting the return of Elijah or one in the spirit and power of Elijah to precede God's renewing work Malachi 4 5 says see I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes this Elijah figure would precede the renewal of God and John the Baptist gives his second negative response simply saying I am not His denial here is a bit more challenging because Jesus in Matthew 12 says that if you are willing to accept it, that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. And it is quite possible to reconcile this seeming tension on the surface by suggesting following CFD Mool that John humbly rejected the exalted title, but Jesus rightly bestowed it on him. John had such humility, as we'll see in just a moment. That he wouldn't take that on himself. But Jesus has a much greater right to bestow it upon John. That in fact he was the Elijah to come. The interrogators continue. Are you the prophet? Pointing back to Deuteronomy 18. There there would be a prophet like Moses. To whom the people of God were to listen. And this had begun. this, This prophecy had been wrapped up in the messianic expectations of the day. And so they asked John. Are you the prophet? Perhaps this is who you are. And John's answer is even shorter. No. He goes from I am not the Christ. I am not. To know as if you're missing the point those of you asking this question it's not about me I'm not the one so who are you really John the Baptist what do you say about yourself and and he gives three affirmations that are helpful even to us first in verse 22 he quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3 I am the voice of one calling in the desert makes straight the way for the Lord These words, of course, are rooted in a section of Isaiah that perhaps more than any other section of the Old Testament undergirds the story of Jesus and all that he accomplishes in the great renewal. That's a passage in Isaiah that's anticipating the renewal of God, the the new wine, the the blessing, the, the, the life that God will bring, the new creation. And this is right from the beginning, the voice of one crying in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is saying, yes, I do have a part to play in this, but I'm just the voice. I'm just the messenger. I'm just pointing to the one who will come after me. And then he says in verse 26, I am the water baptizer. They ask him the question, why do you baptize with water if you're not the Christ or you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet? And John doesn't really answer the question. He just says, I I do baptize with water, but there is one standing among you whom you do not know the Pharisees were the ones who asked him that question about baptism they were blinded by their zeal we think of Saul later called Paul who didn't know Jesus and was persecuting him despite his zeal for the law of God John seems to be saying he's standing among you but you don't see him that's what's important here not the fact that I baptized with water but that there is this one that you don't know standing among you his final point that he makes about himself is I am unworthy I'm not worthy even to untie the straps of his sandals the place of a servant a very low servant John says I don't even deserve that place or that position in relation to this one who's standing among you I am not worthy it's not about me John says I am not the Christ, but I am a voice who is pointing towards someone else. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is the lesson that, John teaches us about that question, who am I? I am not the Christ, but I am pointing. I I was created. You were created. All of us were created to point to the glory of another. We were created to manifest the glory of God through the gifts and particular stories that God has given us in our lives. We were created to point to him. And that's what John teaches us in his response to those who come. We all know how awkward it, it is when We've come to an event to hear a speaker and the person who is introducing the speaker tries to draw attention to him or herself. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. It's not right. And in the similar fashion, John is saying, look, I'm just the one introducing the person who's here to be the plenary. It's about him. And that's a model for Christian discipleship and it's a model for our lives. This brings us to the second question. Who is Jesus? Verses 29 through 34. And this of course is the far more important question this is the question that occupies John's gospel in its entirety and that especially occupies his opening chapter the prologue of course is full of these deep truths about the person of the word who is Jesus but it's interesting to note that from verse 19 to the end of the chapter this beginning of the narrative we have more names for Jesus given in these verses than anywhere else in the New Testament stacked on top of one another it's as if John the evangelist is saying to us look I, this is what matters you need to know who Jesus is. This is what matters above all. So John the Baptist on the next day in verse 29 gives what we would call his Jesus defining sermon. And I should note that this sermon is initiated by Jesus himself. Because if you look in verse 29, it's Jesus who was coming toward John. And I think there's a beautiful little hint here about the centrality of the divine initiative and divine grace in the life of Christian discipleship. God moves first. God steps in first. God is the one who makes himself known. God enables us to respond with belief or faith. In fact John the Baptist says in verse 31 and in verse 33 that he himself did not know this one who was coming after him. It's beautiful kind of a John had tremendous zeal tremendous insight tremendous uh, charisma people were coming to him from all over and yet he says I was the one who was ignorant I didn't know until God spoke in verse 33 to me. Revelation is divine grace God's movement is first We can know God because he has made himself known. Jesus is coming toward John the Baptist inaugurates John the Baptist's witness to Jesus which now we see in three primary declarations in verses 29 to 34. The central one because it's first and because it's repeated again in verse 36. Behold or look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world we can't help but see the cross in these first words in the narrative about Jesus we hear about his end where he's going where he's heading the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world there are a number of possible backgrounds for this phrase the lamb of God one is the apocalyptic warrior lamb who features in the book of Revelation another book attributed to John and who is referenced in a couple of intertestamental texts that the Jewish people of that day would have been very familiar with and this apocalyptic lamb overthrows the enemies of God there is the Passover lamb of exodus 12 slain and sacrificed in order that the people of God might be spared from death and delivered out of bondage and brought into freedom There's the suffering servant lamb of Isaiah 53 that we read earlier in the service. Described as a lamb led to the slaughter. And there are the twice daily burnt offering lambs in the temple in Exodus 29, 38 and following. Which are connected to God's glory dwelling among his people. All of these backgrounds point to dealing with sin. Sin is what holds us captive sin is our great enemy the one holding us in bondage sin renders us guilty making us dirty and the Lamb of God will be the agent of sin's defeat and removal and not just for Israel but for the world that is there is no one who is beyond the reach of the sin removing work of this Lamb of God a sin removing work that of course is accomplished in its greatest uh manifestation at the cross where Jesus in being on the cross says at the end of John's gospel it is finished I've done it this is over the work is done the lamb of God has been slain and taken away the sin of the world to atone for sin and to defeat sin so first John 3 5 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins this is the work of Jesus this is the great news Of the gospel and it's here in the very first words about Jesus in the gospel of John on the lips of John the Baptist one of the things that this means is that Jesus cannot be understood as simply a great teacher we are of course mesmerized by his amazing teaching but Jesus came to do more than to teach us he came to defeat and take away sin evil and death by bearing them upon himself as our substitute on the cross, as the Lamb of God. That's why all the Gospels, and John is no exception, build toward the story of the passion of Jesus as he comes to his death. And of course, then his subsequent resurrection. This is what defines his mission and his person. And this is why we can't be attracted only to his teaching. But we we are to understand the logic and wonder of his salvific work on the cross... The corollary of this of course is that for us as human beings our great problem is not ignorance but sin. We don't just need good teaching or better learning or the triumph of reason. We cannot think our way out of our predicament. Sin binds us and distorts us and diminishes us. Thanks be to God for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why he came. And this is what he accomplished at the cross. And all of this is, in a sense, there in somewhat nascent form in John's first confession about the identity of Jesus. His second declaration about Jesus is in verses 32 and 33. Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit, as a dove, descends and remains. He is the one who gives the Spirit to others. That is, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, as John says and this spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove and remaining upon him is a, a sure indicator of the messianic hope of the prophet Isaiah that is coming to pass and to fulfillment now in Jesus there are many texts in Isaiah 11 Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61 that refer to the spirit descending and being and coming upon the servant of God the long awaited son of David who would liberate God's people Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 the spirit of the lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me in Luke chapter four at the opening of his ministry in Luke's gospel but not only is Jesus the one on whom the spirit descends and remains but Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit that is Jesus does not just remove sin bringing forgiveness and liberating us from its bondage and power but Jesus also pours out life he empowers us by giving us the spirit giving us life itself John's third and final statement about Jesus has to do with the person of Jesus. Who is the one who could do the sin removing work and the spirit giving work? What is it about his person? And he says, I have seen and I testify that this is the son of God. The one who accomplishes this forgiving and empowering work is none other than God's eternal son. And the, the expression the son of God has lots of layers of meaning. It points to Israel who is known as the son of God. And Jesus represents, there's the corporate embodiment of Israel in a person. It points to Israel's expected Messiah in Psalm 2 that is the son, the one whom the Lord has begotten. This was also a title used of the emperors in the Greco-Roman Empire. They were known as the son of God, implying political and kingly connotations. But then, of course, in John's gospel, this phrase son of God has such a deep meaning that... This is God's eternal son, the word, the one who shares in the divine identity with his father, the one who represents Yahweh returning to his people to Zion to set them free. That is the person of Jesus is John's third contribution here, is the reason that Jesus can accomplish the sin-bearing work of the land and the spirit-giving work of empowerment to life. Because Jesus embodies God himself among his people. You know we have our own ways of dealing with sin. We attempt to do this in our own lives. One of them is to ignore sin and to deny that it exists. It may be that you're you're listening in and thinking I don't even know what to think about this thing called sin. The European intellectuals of the late 19th and early 20th century worked hard to build a more just society. What we would call in some ways the welfare state. And they, they sought to build a more just world. And they did some good work in that. But they all were united in a common belief in the goodness of humanity. Beatrice Webb was a, a British member of those intellectuals. A, a thinker, an economist, a sociologist. And she reflecting back in the 1920s on the optimism of the late 1800s said this she said in my diary in 1890 I wrote I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature and she continues now 35 years later I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man and how little you can count on changing them by any change in the social machinery no amount of knowledge or science she says will prevail unless we can curb the bad impulse you can ignore it you can deny it and certainly Beatrice did as did her colleagues but she comes to this realization sooner or later you begin to see and to understand that there is an evil impulse inside of humanity that continues to manifest itself regardless of how we try to push it down it continues to pop itself back up and she said honestly until that impulse is curbed we have little hope science and knowledge cannot get us out So we can ignore it or deny it. But eventually we have to come to terms that it's there. Or we can work hard to overcome it. Some of us live with a sense of we're broken. And we know that that's true. We live with a sense of not being who we know that we should be. That's a very common human experience. And often what our response to that is, is I'll just try harder. I'll just make different New Year's resolutions this year. I'll just work a little bit more and make this happen. But eventually that gets exhausting and crushes us and we can feel deeply hopeless. E Stanley Jones was a missionary to India, a Methodist missionary in the early 20th century, and a young Jain student wrote to him, Jainism Uh, One of its key principles as a religion is that true perception, true and right knowledge, and true and right conduct are the key to liberation. And this is what that young student of this religion said to E. Stanley Jones. I have deep faith in my own religion, he said. I believe it to be entirely true, but I need not be ashamed to tell that it exacts unflinching duty and knows no grace. Philosophically, it is all right. You may believe, according to it, that the power behind all things is supremely just and indifferent, but we err, we know not why. We are led on, as it were, on the waves of sin and mistakes. There are powers too great for our frail being, and I wish then that there were a God who would be kind to me, who would feel my weaknesses, and who would extricate me from the meshes of sin and temptation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is good news for every human being that is struggling under the weight of his own imperfections or her own sins. Who is living with a sense of guilt and shame and knowing that we could be more than we are but we continue to fall short. What John proclaims about Jesus in his opening words is that this Jesus has dealt with that problem that we can never get out of through more learning, through to the triumph of reason, through any of our own efforts or attempts. And that is wonderful news. Only God could do that. Or we try to get life. The other great thing that Jesus brings. Not just the removal of sin. But the giving of the spirit. The empowerment of each of us as human beings to know life. We try in all kinds of ways. Through success or knowledge or pleasure. The list goes on and on. But when we're honest. We know. That those things. And this is a message throughout the gospel of John. That those things cannot give what they promise they lead to emptiness thanks be to God for the one on whom the spirit descends who baptizes with the Holy Spirit we can't deal with sin on our own we can't give life or bring life on our own and this is why John the Baptist's lesson to all of us is so critical and so important I am not the Christ I am a pointer a voice we are all pointers and voices Humanity operating the way it's meant and created to operate is humanity that is constantly reflecting glory back to our creator the one who alone can give life the one who alone can remove and take away and defeat and liberate us from the problem of sin that all of us so deeply feel. And that's why John the Baptist teaches us and John the Evangelist through John the Baptist teaches us to keep pointing to him, point to him. Who am I? It doesn't really matter. I'm a voice. I am a part of this great creation that God has made to reflect back to my creator. Who is he? He is the one who deals with my problem. He is the one who gives me life. And he is the son of God who alone can do this. God in the flesh who can do the work that I desperately long to have done. Come and see. My prayer is that we'll come and see this Jesus more and more as we work through this gospel together. To see the one who does deal with sin and to see the one who truly brings life. This is the great Christian hope. This is why we constantly say in response to every question, to every inquiry... Jesus 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 behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the one who baptizes with the spirit he is our life he is our hope he is our Lord let's pray oh God we cry out to you to help us see Jesus in our lives we still have a need for his work to remove sin to give life and I pray today that for all of us that you would pierce through the distraction the darkness the guilt and shame the pride and ego whatever it is that's blocking us from you that we might see Jesus how we thank you and praise you for dealing with our great problem and for giving us what we deeply long for. We honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.